0: Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Hello, folks, and uh, welcome to another edition of Compound Interests. I am your host, John Najarian. The other gentleman is Galen Moore. He is the director of data and indexes at Coindesk. I had to keep myself from saying uh, the other elephant in the room. Coindesk is certainly one of the most trafficked and popular uh, sites for digital assets, folks. But it's a Coinbase kind of world right now because of that direct listing. And uh, I think it's extremely timely that we've got Galen Moore to talk about it. So Galen, thank you so much for joining us here today. We're really looking forward to your insights and uh, to learning more about Coindesk. Thank you, sir.
1: Thanks, John. Glad to be here.
0: Um, Galen, if you wouldn't mind giving folks a little bit of your background, I suspect that you haven't been doing digital assets your entire career, Um, but you probably have a a career that will make what you're doing for data and indexes all the more vital over at Coindesk. So please, if you wouldn't mind sharing with the, the viewers and the listeners a little bit of your background, that would be great
1: happy to do that. Um, so I'm the director of data and indexes at uh, Coindesk. Coindesk um, is a news and information and events organization. Uh, and we publish a Bitcoin price. We also recently acquired a company trade block that is the largest provider of institutional uh, price and index data uh, in the crypto space. And we are uh, integrating that company and working toward building a, a broader offering of uh, price products. Uh, So, you know, as you may know, right, Bitcoin itself is price discovery occurs on many different venues. Uh, Mm -hmm. So we we publish the most accurate Bitcoin price uh, in the industry. And um, building on that, we're we're publishing multiple uh, multi-asset indexes as well and looking for ways to give people better uh, diversified opportunities to invest.
0: Fantastic. And I'm sure there's going to be, there probably already has been huge demand for your data, but also um, given some of the data that's out there, I mean, like Binance, um, of course, most of the folks listening to this that are at all crypto based know how big Binance is and Coinbase is a monster, but I guess that makes yeah. Binance Godzilla.
1: That's something right. Like that. Yeah, I mean, crypto is like that. Just when you think you've found the, the whaliest whales, there's a whole other substratum of the ocean uh where the where the leviathans swim and, and yeah if you look at coinbase and think about how big it is and then you apply the numbers if you just sort of think about coinbase's volume you know if you think of it as a volume to value ratio the the number that you come out with for binance is uh, truly a heart-stopping and frightening kind of a number
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah it is um i mean uh, the fact that um when it comes out folks um, Coinbase, that is, and again, CoinDesk is going to be extremely popular if they decide to do a direct listing or a more traditional IPO or go a SPAC route, who knows these days. I
1: cannot confirm nor deny any of those. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but um, my gosh, uh, the uh, the fact that it's bigger than the NASDAQ, bigger than NYSE ICE, mm. um, you know, those are massive exchanges, folks. That have been around in the case of the NYSE for coming up on its second century of being a, an exchange. Uh, and the NASDAQ, of course, National Association uh, for whatever dealers automated quote or whatever NASDAQ stood for or stands for. Um, that is a big exchange. The yeah. Chicago Board Option Exchange or SIBO is big. Um, the CME is big, and yet you're taking it to a whole nother level when you're talking about Coinbase and this direct listing, because so many people are on these. I mean, it used to be sort of just brushed aside, Galen, how many people were involved in crypto. Everybody thought, well, it's probably of the 110 million securities accounts, probably a couple million might, maybe it's a million, million and a half have, you know, crypto accounts or whatever. And that's not even close. To what the numbers that Coinbase is reporting on their S one?
1: Yeah, the um, I mean, I think look, the interesting thing about uh, crypto is that um, really the exchanges are the um, the marquee household name firms here. Uh, I mean, obviously the names you just rattled off are are market stalwarts; they're they're known the world over. But I think if you walked up to anybody on the street anywhere and asked them to name a Wall Street firm, I, I doubt that Nasdaq or ICE would be. The first thing out of their mouth or cboe right it would be exactly. goldman or jackie morgan or exactly and and coinbase is um you know the the price that people are talking about for coinbase is approaching uh goldman yeah right, in terms of market cap so i mean i think you know you're, you're looking at a and and i mean it, it makes sense in some ways i'm not saying the number makes sense but but what does make sense to me anyway is um you know, this is a very different animal from a, from a traditional exchange, right? The Coinbase is, in some ways, it's a bank. They're, they take custody of their customers' assets. Mm-hmm. Um, and when you, you know, they, they operate a prime brokerage service. Uh, when you look at, um, you know, where things are going with DeFi and crypto lending and staking, you could start to see a service like Coinbase becoming more and more bank-like. So I, yeah. I do think that there's a it, to the extent that people are actually thinking this through, I I do think that there's a, a kind of a, a looking at this as a the sort of bank of the, you know the the bank of the future uh, kind of you know the sort of future financial system in which this entity Coinbase or entities like it might play a role more like a Goldman uh, than like a um, than like an NYSE.
0: And uh, there's also the side of uh... The speed or acceleration um, in their growth, which has right. been phenomenal. Obviously, uh, the pandemic was great for Robinhood and a number of other online brokers and even sites like ours. Quite frankly, Galen, uh, you know, we were lucky enough to be out there. And then my brother and I being on TV, it just kind of drove more and more folks to our website Mm-hmm. Um, and it was just literally growing exponentially last year. Knock on wood, still growing very fast this year. But then you take a look at the S1 of Coinbase. And just to throw a, a number out there, the revenue last year, folks, which was, you know, a billion and a half dollars or something like that from the S1 that they filed, the revenue for the first quarter of 2021 was 150% of all of last year. As good as it was last year, as much uh, as people were just flocking to the likes of Coinbase and Binance and BlockFi and all of these, of course, getting their information from CoinDesk. (laughs) But as they were doing all those things, um, that volume has been surpassed in one quarter by 150% by, uh, Coinbase, which is just an amazing stat I thought Galen when I pulled that one off the S1.
1: Yeah, I think that's um, the Q1 growth is, it's sort of, it's more than even knowing what you know about what the price of Bitcoin and, and other crypto assets has done in the past two quarters. It's uh, I think it's, it's still, it's still an eye-opening number. I, I think actually the most impressive figure in there um, in that S1 was what they've done in terms of building their institutional business Uh, And I I Coinbase Pro. Coinbase Pro, the the uh you know they acquired Tagomi, uh which Mm -hmm. is a prime brokerage, um uh named after the character in the uh Philip K. Dick novel, of course, uh the man in the high castle, right? Which they made into a Netflix series, I think. Yes, they did. Um the uh the 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 way that that's grown right the inst- they they broke it down in the s1 and i think it was if i remember the numbers right it was about 30 percent of their business at the beginning of uh 2018 mm-hmm. and by the time they had gotten to the end of q4 2020 it was um you know they had flipped it uh you know 70 where it had been 70 percent retail 30 percent institutional it had become more like 70 percent institutional and 30 percent retail And I think that's just critical for them. And and there's a couple of reasons why, you know, they're um, they've got for all the attention on Coinbase, their competition is not far behind Uh, Kraken and, and even Binance U.S., are very much uh, in the running. Kraken's talking about an IPO. Of course, you know, everybody talks about an IPO, right? But, but it's, it's plausible. And, um, and certainly they, they are not far behind. And tra- Kraken and Binance US do tend to list assets more aggressively than Coinbase. And I think it makes sense that they do. They don't have as fine a line to walk with regulatory scrutiny. Mm-hmm. Uh, being sort of the number two, number three takes a little heat off. Uh, so I think Coinbase does tend to be later with listing assets that are new, that may have higher securities, regulatory risk um, or, or other forms of risk uh, than some of their competitors do. So they have that trade-off between regulatory, um, you know, doing the right thing by the regulators and, and doing the right thing by the growth numbers that they now need to put up to satisfy uh, the market now. You know the pressure comes off on that in two ways when they build their institutional business like one is the institutional business is not as fickle they don't jump from exchange to exchange because you just added the newest altcoin true and and two there's not as much regulatory scrutiny that comes with dealing with institutions right i think i think the sec especially is mostly you know concerned with protecting the you know the small investor um you know that's that's not exclusively their concern but i think you know once you're dealing with retail investors it does tend to invite more regulatory scrutiny uh, and so the more that Coinbase has built that business, I think that's a really positive sign for them for the long term.
0: Oh, absolutely. And I I uh, was reading an article uh, online. Um, it could have been on Coindesk. I frequently am on there. Um, and that's a shameless plug for Coindesk, folks. Shucks, uh, shucks, <laughs> But um, because they do have great data there. And uh, Galen Moore, the gentleman we're talking to, that's one of his areas of that's one of his purview uh, on Coinbase. Uh, uh, CoinDesk. I said it again. But anyway, CoinDesk. But I was reading, Galen, about uh, this uh, guy named uh, uh, Mike, who was a CIA operative for 33 years. And he was speaking at a conference. And he was talking about statements that Janet Yellen and others have made about illicit activity with Um, cryptocurrencies. And I'm sure a lot of it stems back to Silk Road, of course, Um, because famously, that was one of the things that really jump-started a lot of people's businesses that were, you know, basically doing like a Charlie Shrem was helping people get Bitcoin back in the day. Um, And Charlie wasn't doing nefarious things with it, but the people that were buying Bitcoin were in many cases Doing things that were um, against the law with it because that's what uh, Silk Road was for. It would facilitate. They yeah. didn't actually provide directly, but they were the Amazon of drugs and other stuff that was against the law.
1: Some of which are legal um, now, by the way. What's that? Some of which are legal now, by the way.
0: Yes, some of which are legal now. Uh, <laughs> and you see his mom, by the way, um, yep. at a lot of uh, shows. I've I've signed the petition. Um, that his mom always has at these shows. I'm sure mm-hmm. when I'm down at BTC Miami or at your consensus event or in any of these things, that she'll probably be there. Um, but yeah, the, um, for his cause. The, the agent was saying that, look, illicit finance uh, is way overstated. And he showed a graph of how much it's come down based on what the CIA and FBI have gleaned Um, And one of the reasons is blockchain analysis, again, back to Galen with uh, the data, um, blockchain analysis is highly effective as a crime fighting tool and an intel gathering tool, because it turns out that people think, oh, yeah, but it's so anonymous. Cash is far more anonymous than anything on a blockchain would be anonymous. Uh, You know, Um, I think it's
1: interesting. I know a lot of Bitcoiners who love paper cash you would think of it uh i think many people would think of it as kind of um would expect it to be the other way right yeah. digital world right uh mm-hmm. cash being the last generation but i think what what bitcoin and other uh, digital assets that that are uh, on its level can do is um you know convey some of the privacy uh guarantees that cash that cash has in a digital uh environment now can it convey all of those privacy uh, guarantees, no, it cannot, right? There's, uh, there's a reason they call it brown paper bag money, right? But it's, <laughs> but uh, edit that part. <laughs> but, but they, you know, there, there is, I think there's a line in Nathaniel Popper's book, uh, Digital Gold, uh, yep. law enforcement, the individual law enforcement says it's, they, they were calling it uh, prosecution futures. Right. Yeah. Because every, every transaction is recorded uh, and it's transparent and it's public on the Bitcoin blockchain. You can go back years later and say, OK, this Bitcoin came from that Silk Road transaction. And when it pops up and gets used the next time, that's when the, the feds will be at your door. Uh, yep. So I think, you know, the, the issue of, of Bitcoin used in crime, I think, is certainly to some extent a red herring. But, but the, the broader thing is, is um, and I, I think to Janet Yella's point, is uh, you, you know the minimal extent to which it's actually used in commerce, right? Mm-hmm. And I, I think Janet Yellen and the Treasury Department themselves have something to say about that because they have not yet adopted a de minimis exclusion for Bitcoin transactions. If I go and buy a cup of coffee uh, with Bitcoin, not, not that I really necessarily want to do that that much. Like I, I, I've made some Bitcoin transactions that were not just speculative, that were uh, transactive, uh, but not, not for coffee. Um, but if i did that i've got to report that as a taxable event and that's that's absurd so if if uh, if the beef is that uh, and i think i think i read Jenny ellens comments right the beef is that it's used very little for commerce and so, and some significant percentage of its commercial use is in illicit commerce mm-hmm. that i think there's a there's a clear answer to how to solve that problem which is to you know to apply that de minimis exclusion and allow people to transact without taxes
0: yeah well i certainly support that and agree with it um, folks we're talking with uh, Galen Moore, Director of Data and Indexes at Coindesk. Um, and uh, given that we've got this massive uh, IPO, actually direct list that's coming our way, we thought, well, let's discuss a little bit about you know, what you think the impact has been already. Mm-hmm. And you know, uh, you're not giving investment advice, Galen, but um, as a guy who has traded for almost 40 years, this is a classic run up into the event. Now that doesn't mean that Bitcoin and Ethereum and even Doge, God forbid, have to go down after Coinbase comes out with this direct listing. But I've seen this happen so many times that that's exactly what does happen. Hmm. The, the uh, folks get in ahead of it, it runs to the upside very predictably and then are there more people to keep running in or does it now make a little bit of a correction? Because we've had very little correction. I mean, February, we -hmm. had a correction. February went from 58,000 or thereabout in BTC, in Bitcoin terms, Mm -hmm. back down into the low 40s um, or 43, whatever it was, you know? And uh, so that was what I I would call that a correction.
1: I think you hit the nail on the head there in a way, which is... Like, what is the floor, right? Mm-hmm. The, I mean, it's not so much that the, the, you know, the ceiling keeps going up, which it does, but but it's that the floor keeps rising. Mm-hmm. Um, Jeff Dorman from ARCA was on uh, CoinDesk TV a couple of weeks ago and made that comment. And, I, I, you know, it's been sticking with me. You know, you you were like talking it. now about, you hear analysts talking about, well, Bitcoin could go back down to 40,000. You just got to, you got to, you got to back up from that statement, <laughs> And think about that for a second, because, I mean, if you had said in, um, you know, if you had said in uh, uh, whatever, you know, this time in the third quarter or something of 2020, that Bitcoin was going to go to 40,000, you'd be, you know, I mean, people would think that was a bold prediction. So, you know, I think think you were
0: trying to be Novogratz or trying to be Max Keiser. Right,
1: exactly. I mean, mean, there's been a, there's like a kind of a, a... a, um, a panel of experts that come through regularly with predictions like that and their numbers keep going higher and higher. The, um, the, the thing, I mean, that almost doesn't gain attention anymore, does it? The, um, the, the thing that's interesting to think about though is not only like what's the cost of coming in at this price but like really what's the cost of sitting out, right? If you're, if you are, um, you know, thinking, I mean, you know, this is the story of Bitcoin's growth, right, everybody, oh, well, I should have bought when it was, when it was, you know, $10. Now it's, you know, now it's $500 and that's too expensive. (laughs) And, and so, you know, I mean, for me, I personally, my my efforts to time the peaks have been disastrous. Every time I've sold, I've regretted it. And I am, I am basically on a, um, you know, what I I average in when I have a, when I have the cash to, um, to invest, I make a small investment. And um, I think, you know, that's proven to be a, um, I think for a lot of people, that's proven to be a really productive strategy.
0: Well, uh, it's a similar strategy to one that I voice all the time, Galen, and that is, so I was just out skiing in Wyoming a little bit ago, went over to Jackson Hole and Targi. And the people I was there with, a couple of them recognized me. Um, I wasn't with them, but I was staying in the same hotel. And then we saw each other around the fireplace and inevitably it got to stocks and cryptocurrency. So they said, well, John, you know, I'm exactly that guy. I missed it at $10. I missed it at 500 I missed it at 1000 I missed it at 5000 and so on. Um, what do you think now? What should I do? And I said, well, first of all, buy small on dips. On yeah. dips, buy small until you have one coin. If you're somebody who is looking to accumulate a Bitcoin, not just a hundredth of a Bitcoin or a thousandth, there's nothing wrong with that. But if you want to actually have a Bitcoin, so you don't feel like a fool when it does go to a million, because it might, (laughs) there are stranger things that have happened, folks. I mean, I saw King Kong give uh, Godzilla a right hook and I never thought I'd see that. So strange things do happen, not just in the movies. How how was
1: it, by the way? Was it any good?
0: I've only seen part of it. Um, My daughter ended up forgetting that she had a tutor coming in so we started it and then I had to you know back off and turn it off because she said don't watch it and I said I'll watch it again (laughs) with you I don't want you to see it before I see it so anyway but um I tell them put your toe in buy a piece yeah um bitcoin back then was right around 53 or so and this is a little over a month ago and uh they said but I, you know, that's what you do. And I said, that's what I still do. Yeah. I still buy on dips exactly what Galen Moore, which by the way, on Twitter, it's at G-A-L-L-E-N uh, M-O-O-R-E. One L, G-A-L-E-N
1: M-O-O-R-E. Oh yeah, just
0: G-A-L-E-N, sorry, M-O-O-R-E. See, when you're dyslexic, this is the problem.
1: And by the way, I am a total lurker. Like I rarely even tweet anymore.
0: All right, well, you can lurk and follow the data guru over at Coindesk, folks, uh, Galen Moore on Twitter, but, and you can follow Coindesk, and of course, we've got that uh, link in here as well. Um, But all of those people who followed that, and many of them texted me over the next couple weeks, they said, thank you so much, because I, I couldn't pull the trigger. And I'm like, you don't have to buy a whole Bitcoin.
1: Exactly, yeah, buy you a know, small amount. I've put had in 5,000
0: bucks. If you're somebody who has the money to buy a $55,000 asset, you don't have to buy the whole asset. You can buy $5,000 worth. Now you start getting a little bit of a feel for it. Then mm-hmm. you maybe buy another on another dip and so forth. A couple of them have bought a full coin at this point and they're delighted. And now they kind of get it. Now, granted, it's a market that's been rising, pulling back a little and rising a lot um, over the past month. So I get that. Um, All of us were geniuses in 2017 when it started making that run from a thousand to, you know, 19,000 or whatever. But I think just taking little bites on dips is great advice. Same advice I give. And if any of you are just getting involved, do it that way. Just take small chunks. um, And then as you get comfortable with it, maybe you decide that you want to actually trade and trade these alt assets. Right now, I mean, I'm one of the owners of uh, Voyager. Um, It's a great uh, trading app. And it literally is an app on your phone, you know, Voyager and so forth. And I've got eight altcoins on here and Bitcoin that I'm trading actively. Um, Bitcoin, I don't trade at all. I only accumulated on dips and there have been scant few of those uh, in the last little bit, but I love trading the altcoins. I really do. And they move, some of them move 20%, 30% in a day and not just the ones that you can only access through a VPN in China.
1: you know so the, the past the past quarter has actually really been a story of altcoin it's been i think you know by any realistic any sort of objective measure altcoin season the top mm-hmm. alts have outpaced bitcoin by factors of three and four uh in terms of quarterly returns which is not to say that bitcoin isn't an interesting investment it just means like kind of what's what's really in the driver's seat in terms of momentum in the market right now it is the altcoins and has been for the past quarter in the fourth quarter it was a different story it was very much bitcoin and that, you know, that kind of shift from Bitcoin to altcoins is an interesting dynamic in the market, but, but where I think actually you're, um, you know, and one place where we can tie this back to Coinbase, where Coinbase becomes interesting again is as a kind of a, a more diversified bet uh, where, you know, whatever, trading altcoins is not for everybody. I, I, I uh, personally, it's not for me. Like I, I enjoy researching. I enjoy seeing what projects are doing. I might buy a little bit to hold here and there and something I believe in. The ability to do that, I think, is you know one of the exciting innovations of this category uh, for a person you know like myself, who's not you know I am not a um, high net worth individual, um, but but being able to go in and make a small kind of venture bet uh, is a is a very compelling um, is a very compelling use case, and, um, and and you know I think there are going to be an increasing number of people who are looking for a way to spread right to kind of get a diversified uh, passive, if you will approach to this um, to this asset category. And now you see, right, Coinbase coming online with an IPO. Uh, the first Bitcoin ETF uh, was approved in North America earlier this year. By the way, uh, Purpose Investments, the issue with that ETF, is a client of Coindesk Indexes. Um, and we're seeing the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust, uh, another Coindesk Indexes client, right, they have, uh, they have their uh, $37, 38000000000 billion uh, AUM fund that is uh, poised to become an ETF. Um, So once we enter ETF world, uh, and and once we have multiple public companies that are spread across multiple assets, I think you will see a kind of a flourishing of a passive investment um, strategy era uh, in crypto assets. And I think that's going to be very beneficial for a lot of people who want to participate.
0: Absolutely. And while that will be very beneficial, let's talk about, it's not the elephant in the room at all, but let's talk about when you have exchange disruptions, um because you know uh virtually everybody has some sort of whether it's a hack maybe they don't get in and get all the way in and get coins off of there although that has happened of course famously mm-hmm. um but when exchanges have disruptions could be a denial of service attack um that i've seen happen to several of the exchanges in the last couple months even that's a big negative because you never really see the nasdaq or ICE or CME, you know, go down because of a, you know, a denial of service attack or whatever. Um, What do you think uh, when you look at things like that, Galen, what do you think um, is the impact of those disruptions?
1: You know, John, I think it just underscores how um, this is not yet a mature uh, asset category. This market infrastructure is not yet as mature uh, as it is in, in securities. Um, And so, you know, there's a need uh, for an ability to, you know, measure that risk uh, and also to uh, spread it. Uh, So one of the things that one of the things that CoinDesk indexes provides, right, is a um, uh, uh, average price of Bitcoin uh, that goes across the most liquid exchanges uh, that are accessible to U.S. investors. It's called the XBX. So this is our kind of flagship uh, crypto index price. And um, if one of those exchanges goes down, which happens frequently, and we, you know, we're, this is our, you know, providing this data is not just something we do to sell ads, this is our business. Uh, we know when those exchanges are down, the algorithm that runs the XPX will rebalance the price, um, you know, de-weight that index, uh, sorry, de-weight that exchange and, right. um, and, you know, create what is then a, a, an accurate reflection of the sort of, if you will, real price in the market when um when one exchange shuts down or has a flash crash, and you know it's um it's something that happens on on some of the most liquid and and reputable exchanges uh, operating including coinbase i don't think I don't think it's something to like fault or point a finger about um you know those exchanges are doing the best they can with tremendous volume growth as we've seen, and they're providing a new form of interest infrastructure in trading um that you know is is still innovative uh so you know. The important thing is as an investor to be able to, you know, to again, manage that risk, understand where you're trading and, you know, what the liquidity is likely to be uh, when you get there.
0: Um, One of the things uh, that I do, my brother and I, Galen, that we've done for decades now is volume analysis. So when, uh, when Casey Craig said, hey, I got our guy, you know, the director of data and indexes, I said, bring him on. You know, I want to talk to him. Um, because I love doing volume-based analysis because we we have co-located servers um, for securities and futures in the United States. Now, we don't have any such thing, of course, for um, digital assets yet. We have- yeah, And if you did, you'd have
1: to have them co-located in 15 different locations. <laughs> yeah,
0: or, or in 200 different, lo- yeah, you're <laughs> right. Um, but what we do is we've still applied many of the same algorithms to the digital asset space. And not surprisingly, it works exceedingly well. Yeah. When we start to see a big pickup in volume, um, it usually precedes by minutes um, the moves in that uh, particular altcoin or even Bitcoin occasionally. But the volume analysis, you know, something's trading 250 million in a 24 hour period and all of a sudden we see it jumping to 600 million, 700 million, as that's pulsing up, we're trying to ride that wave in that particular altcoin, you know, whether it's Polkadot, whether it's even Doge, you know, which I kind of joke around a lot about my Doge of the day.
1: I, I love Doge. I love Doge. Can I just talk about Doge for one moment? Sure, I'd love to hear it. Okay, so, so I mean, Doge is, is, uh, is like, I mean, Bitcoin has a great technology story. You know, people love gold because it's beautiful and people love Bitcoin because it's beautiful, right? If you're an economist, a game theoretician, if you're a technologist, Bitcoin is beautiful. Doge doesn't have any of those beautiful qualities, <laughs> you know? Yeah. But but Doge has something that uh, has motivated a lot of people. And, and I think what it underscores for, for Bitcoin and for all crypto assets is the importance of that social layer. Uh, and I, I mean this completely seriously, Even to the extent it's become a kind of a joke project, and you know whatever a meme coin, just the um, the fact that it's motivated people in the way that it has with with such a thin uh, technology base, it 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 should give people a lens through which to recognize that what makes Bitcoin unique is not necessarily its technology; it's the community that you know that has adopted it, right? It's the social layer, Mm -hmm. Uh, and I, I think that's the ultimate line of defense. Uh, to prevent Bitcoin from um, from being you know hacked or or disrupted in some way. Um, but to your point about about volume analysis, I think it's it's absolutely you're absolutely spot on there and it's something that's so often overlooked uh, in general. Um, but in crypto, it's especially challenging because the volume is so fragmented, right? You have any number of exchanges where price discovery is happening. Um, and so you know I think, You know, again, what what we're looking to do at CoinDesk indexes is is try to bring data from all those disparate sources uh, into one place and really narrow it down in a way for the investor who, you know, may not want to be trading. I mean, if you think about, you know, let alone retail, like the average institutional investor does not want to have their capital deployed in, you know, a dozen different exchanges. Mm -hmm. So our indexes are narrow based. You know, we look at the three, four, five most liquid markets. And we look to pull a price from there that, that can be said to be the price of Bitcoin or ETH or, you know, any of a dozen other assets. And I think, um, you know, the insights that can be gained from having that very focused and, um, uh, you know, uh, I would say robust view of the volume uh, are, are certainly not to be overlooked.
0: Right. Well, like I say, uh, uh, I I've frequently, Galen, as a guy who came into the business from the Chicago Bears. I mean, I was pro football player briefly, um, came down to the floor, and everybody on uh, the floor in those days needed something um, that was like a a cane, like a blind person with a cane, where you're tapping around trying to figure out, is this stock going up or down? Um, Is this option? And one of the things that almost universally they used and Of course, people use today is charting, technical analysis, and so Mm -hmm. forth. And it gives people some level of comfort um, to know that this is a pattern that is repeated over time. And when you see this kind of pattern, whether you're talking um, candlesticks or whether you're just doing point and figure charts or whatever, you're trying to um, make yourself comfortable with making that bet, making that investment. And for me, that has for, you know, the better part of 25 years been volume Um, because sure, people could just willy-nilly trade, Uh, they rarely do. Um, They usually have a purpose if they're taking an offer, if it's trading on the offer, those are the guys I wanna follow. I don't really care when people are selling Um, and I'm not for the most part getting short because they're selling. If they're buying puts, different story now I'll get short but if they're just selling they could have bought that thing a day ago a year ago I don't know but mm. if they're buying on the offer they want in and that's the wave that like we say we're surfers we're just sitting out there in the ocean and all of a sudden I feel that lift you know coming up because I'm a small wave surfer my brother Pete's a big wave surfer but so when I feel that little 4 foot wave you know starting to lift up all I've got to do is paddle and then I get a nice ride for 30 seconds or whatever it is.
1: This is um, great, John. I am so here's here's the deal. I am I, planning to learn to surf this summer. My family uh, and I we're going to Northern California coast. We're gonna to learn to surf together. We've never, none of us has ever done it. Ever. <laughs>
0: now, Northern California coast, are you talking about Stinson Beach?
1: I, I'm not. Well, I'm not going to disclose where we're going to be, okay? But yeah. but, I, but I I am I I've, I know there are some places there where you do not want to be as a beginner. But I've also read up on a few places where you know it's a little more friendly and and there are classes available. So that's what we're planning. Well,
0: um, right beneath the Golden Gate Bridge is one of the first places I surfed. Oh yeah, uh, and those aren't exceptionally big waves, but it's a nice consistent break there.
1: Is that right? Um, is there was- risk of getting of getting blown out because, I mean, that's, you know, I'm a sailor. There's always
0: um, that risk.
1: Yeah, that's. Um, but that's, for the most part, the, uh, uh the current is, is pulling yeah. you back. The, the effect of the opening on the bay there is just incredible. I mean, if you, yeah. if you've ever sailed a boat across the bay and you come into that spot where the wind comes through the gap, it's like you go from, you know, hum hum to like,
0: <gasps> you gotta be <laughs> Yeah, Yeah, exactly right. And I was going to say, if you're talking Stinson Beach, huh. um, the breeding ground for the great white is about twenty miles from there.
1: I've read all about. Believe me, i read all.
0: So, <laughs> I don't know anybody who's been bit there, but I do know a lot of surfers that get nervous when they see a yeah.
1: shadow in the water. <laughs> they got a name for it too. That you know, there's something triangle there. I can't. Yeah. remember. It's because, uh, of, gosh,
0: what is that island? Worse than
1: Chatham in Massachusetts, near where I live.
0: Yeah, it's but yeah. there are lots of good breaks, especially to the south. You know, but those some of those are much much bigger. The San Francisco on the beach side, away from the Golden Gate, but ocean on beach, the Pacific, right? yeah, yeah. there it's nice, but they're very short rides. Uh-huh. Um, it's, uh huh. It's they're not long, big, long waves uh, like you get further down the coast. But yeah, I mean, once you've surfed, you know how it is. You could even be on a ocean kayak. As soon as that wave starts lifting, all you've got to do is paddle and. Yeah. You know, you can get on it and that thing will give you a ride. That's what we do with volume, Galen. So that's why, you know, we've-
1: And, you know, to your point earlier, by the way, about not being able to know when somebody who's selling had bought, one of the unique things in crypto is that with a network like Bitcoin, you actually can see some of that. Now, some of it's obscured by the exchange as a middleman, but you can track over time you know, how old, you know, the concept of Bitcoin days destroyed, right? How old is this Bitcoin that's moving here? Is this a long-term holder that's moving or is this a kind of a day trader just, just in and out of positions?
0: Right. And that, that, is, that is a
1: very compelling uh, and interesting world of, of Bitcoin data that we could get into.
0: Yeah. Um, and you don't have names attached to it as you folks know, right. um, but you do have um, every coin is unique. So, and you can tell when the last time that wallet was opened and used for anything. Um, uh, And so if that coin hasn't been sold uh, in a long time, um, yeah, chances are it's a whale uh, who's lightening up or something like that. And it's fun to follow that stuff.
1: When you Um, look at it in aggregate, it's, it is, I mean, they call it hodl waves. It is, you know, it's a wave-like pattern where you can see how the, the coins are moving. And when you compare it to the level of Information that's available in, um, you know, in equities, for example, like where you can, you know, you can see who the large holders are, uh, right? You can log into your Bloomberg terminal and, and see, you know, see something, get, gain some information about the ownership, at least on, a, you know, among the large holders. Uh, there's no way to get that granular look at at what are the, what are the minnows up to.
0: Right, uh, you're right. I mean, there's so much more information. It goes back to what we were talking about with that CIA um operative yeah. Mike Morrell, when he was talking about, you know, illicit activity and things like that, you know, since every one of these coins is known, right, um, even the virgin coins that are just mined. Um, you know, there, there's, you know, I go back all the time, Galen with this, uh, that when people say, well, why is it so compelling to you, John? Why do you care about this as much as or maybe even more than options and stocks that you've traded for 40 years and my answer is well assets gather their value by their scarcity you know there's only one mona lisa um and there's a bunch of uh paintings that are you know there's probably 14 or 15 at least mona lisas that were part way finished um, but there's only one that's hanging in the Louvre, um and so that that asset gathered its value by its scarcity um, and also supply and demand. If you've got people that have demand and you have less supply, that's just what happened in Bitcoin. May of last year, we had another halving where the rewards given to the nodes, the miners, um, for their work, uh, their proof of work, that reward is a Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. And folks that the know are aware that there are half as many of those rewards now since that having last year and another having will come in approximately you know, four more years and so forth. Um, when you have these events um, and if you have a steady supply, a steady demand and you've got half the supply, again, you're pushing that asset to the upside. Right. And then you've got the combination of uh, you know, the, uh, like I say, the assets gather their value by their scarcity. One of the reasons Satoshi Nakamoto, person, group, whatever, um, created Bitcoin the way they did was because they were frustrated with uh, a currency, a paper currency that could just be printed in an unlimited fashion. Right. And these right now, there are 18.5 million Bitcoins. There's going to be a maximum of 21, unless by a 50% plus one vote, they decide to Uh, you know, take their investment apart and say, yeah, let's issue more Bitcoins, which, you know, is extremely unlikely. Um, But uh, again, it's got uh, all of the aspects of an asset that needs to go higher. Less supply, more demand. PayPal, Square, um, Coinbase, Voyager, you know, so many places have made it so simple now for people to get into crypto in one way or another um, that you know you've got more demand less supply and to what Galen said about uh, institutional volume which I want to talk about right now institutional volume has jumped dramatically I remember Galen when it was Pantera when I'd be talking with Brodsky over there at Pantera about what they were doing or any of the Folks that I've been lucky enough to uh, talk to at conferences and things like that, and uh, the volume of trade by these whales now is so much bigger. And then you've got somewhat amateur whales like Michael Saylor um, or sure. Elon Musk, who all of a sudden just decide, yeah,
1: I'm going to buy a billion dollars worth." And and look, I think it goes deeper than that, John. I mean, you know, it's hard to see the activity. I think you know by design, right? Uh, you know with JP Morgan, Morgan Stanley, they don't, they don't want you to know that you, right, that, they're, what they're, that they're about to buy a bunch of Bitcoin or something. But you know, it's not as visible maybe in some ways as the retail activity can be. Uh, but I do think that, that we see signs of more and more kind of consensus in institutional uh, investment. You see you know, uh, the announcements of firms like, uh, you know, recent announcements uh, by firms like uh, Bank of New York Mellon and State Street, these are providing air cover for people inside of institutions large and small who you know want to get active in this space and um uh, you know i think uh you know we see the signs of it at at, uh, at coindesk because uh, the trade block platform uh, that we acquired is the the largest uh, platform for over-the-counter trades which is where a lot of the institutional buys take place um and, you know and, and as we've been talking right coinbase has been reaping uh, you know, the advantage of that by, by providing prime by brokerage service into that space as well. Um, and has handled some of the buys for Michael Saylor and uh, or, um, micro, micro Strategies, excuse me, yeah. uh, and, uh, and others who have who, come in in that way. But I think it's, you know, in terms of sort of Wall Street or financial institutions, fiduciary institutions, um, you know, t- making some kind of allocation to crypto, we're still in the early days of that. And what's actually fascinating to me is that you can now see, um, you know, headlines involving some of those marquee names on Wall Street, and they don't even—they don't really move the price anymore. Like that's sort of, sort of priced in at this point. People are expecting that that's happening, but what I think, you know, what people may not be anticipating is the extent to which, you know, with given that limited supply, um, you know, I, I certainly feel optimistic that that as more and as Bitcoin becomes more and more integrated into an institutional kind of a setting, uh, you'll see. Uh, increased demand right which really is the factor right the the having is a great story and it's and it's part of what makes bitcoin beautiful uh Mm -hmm. it's part of what makes bitcoin attractive Um, but i think uh i think what really is driving the price is not the reduction in supply but the increase in demand
0: yep i i agree um and uh i i never want to diminish you know the the impact of that demand going up dramatically especially when you've got something that you know, it's up 118% this year. Um, Maybe it's up 123% now after today's move um, because we're talking uh, on April 13th right now, folks. uh, And it just crossed 63,000 for the first time um, as it was Bitcoin, BTC. Um, Let me throw another uh, angle at you if I could, Galen. And that is NFTs or non-fungible tokens. Yeah. Um, All the rage uh everybody's talking about it it didn't just happen it didn't just happen now um the nba has already sold 850 million dollars of nfts you believe that i mean so this didn't just happen you know it's not like they just offered it now folks and people came flooding in and bought a whole bunch of jordan's first dunk
1: one of the Michael. first NFTs were were in 2017, right? Late 2017, you saw CryptoKitties and the um, the ERC 720 mm-hmm. um, uh, standard, right? Yep. Uh, so so no, I think, and I, actually, I mean, I think of, I mean, look, if when people ask me to explain like why Bitcoin should matter or what what the big deal is, I think the the clearest path to it for me, anyway, the, the you know aha moment for me was when I started thinking about it as a um, uh you know as the first uh as the first provably scarce digital good, right? It's the first provably scarce digital commodity. So, you know, uh anybody who has been through the past, you know, couple decades um has seen the the kind of rise of digital music and what that's done to uh the recording industry, right, which was before based on the sale of uh these you know somewhat scarce right uh uh physical copies right now you go to something that can be copied at infinitum. Uh, and there's very little there's very little way to control that or channel that, and that was a real challenge for the recording industry to overcome. So when you go into the digital world, how do you prove that something's scarce? How do you prove that you have something unique? You know, there is no such thing as an original pressing of um, you know of a of a well loved LP or something like that, right? Or a single. Uh, so 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 what does that mean in the digital world? Well, Bitcoin is the first thing to come along where you can actually say, look. This is this is this. There's only, there's only 21 million. There's only 18 and a half million of these. And I can prove that to you if you have a computer, right? There's, I don't need to go to my bank and ask them to tell you that there's only eight and a half million, 18 and a half million of them, or how many of them I have control over. I can do that. You can do that if you have a, um, you know, if you have a mobile device. Uh, so, so that, you know, is a really compelling innovation. And I think NFTs are actually a very direct line from that innovation, right? It's provably scarce. You're proving the scarcity of this thing. Where I think the, the, the whole thing kind of maybe lost a little bit in translation is that, like, you're not actually owning this work of art. You know, the image itself can still be reproduced, can be shown elsewhere. So I, I think it's, it's one of these areas where, you know, Bitcoin, Bitcoin exists kind of sui generis, right? It's, it's, it has its own, it it's references itself only. Uh, and, and, and when people try to take the innovation that was Bitcoin and extend it into other industries, whether that be the automotive industry, the travel industry, you know, dentistry, whatever, it, you know, it ends up being, it ends up falling down in between uh, the blockchain and off chain. And I think, you know, a lot of people, you see the stories of the people who are like, well, I bought this NFT, but, you know, I can't, I can't find the image online anymore, you know. <laughs> And I don't mean to laugh because that's a that's a, a bad feeling to have. But but it's um there is that disconnect between what what that thing you own that's on the blockchain, uh, and and whatever it's supposed to represent in the real world. That connection may be more tenuous than you think, and and it, and it's not really conveying the kind of guarantees that a you know that a that a permissionless blockchain should be able to, to convey.
0: Right, and it's like you say, even though um, crypto kitties and things like that were around. Four years ago, um, the uh, the Winklevi, I think maybe it was a year, a year and a half ago, really uh, were pushing and uh, launched their uh, Nifty Gateway, I think it's called, mm, yeah, um, their uh, NFT site, um, and it's probably close to a billion dollar valuation already, just that site. Maybe they'd probably Cameron and Tyler would probably tell me, John, you're not even close. It's much more than that. <laughs> already. And maybe it is, uh, you know, if they're if they're bringing that people, you know, to Sotheby's right. and Sotheby's sells it. Okay. But um, why Mark not Cuban
1: it Mark makes Cuban. It much sense as sneakers. I mean, in a way, right? In right. A, like there's Perfect. there's lots of collectible things people are going are, are getting involved in. You know, does, is it really a prudent investment? Is it the kind of thing you want to build a portfolio around? <laughs> maybe not. But if you like sneakers, you know, if you like digital art, you know, uh, NFTs can be, I mean, it can be a pretty interesting way to, to speculate.
0: And most of the people that were buying baseball cards were buying them because they liked the player. And they thought having a piece of that player on a piece of cardboard, more or less, was cool. And it came with yeah. chewing gum. Um, but now tops, you know, Michael Eisner owns it. And it was just bought by Murdoch. Um, M-U-D-S, I think is the spec. That they just bought Tops, and now Michael's got a billion-dollar war chest for you know taking Tops from just being those uh, baseball cards into the you know deep into the NFT space.
1: Huh. Yeah, and
0: again, there's only a couple Honus Wagner baseball cards, but anybody could have a picture of it. Anybody right. could have right. a picture of a Honus Wagner, but if you actually had the NFT and it was provable that might be worth an awful
1: lot. And I'm not saying Michael has that, but- I think it's interesting, right? I mean, you, especially when you consider some of the like collector based, like card games that exist, Magic the Gathering, um, Pokemon, mm-hmm. uh, you know, taking some of those into a digital realm, um, you know, there's potential there. Uh, people have talked a lot about the potentials of NFTs, the potential of NFTs in the uh, gaming industry. I think, I think that's, that's been a little oversold uh, I think if you, you know, if you pay attention to kind of incentives in the gaming industry and in the video game industry, it's it's going to be a while before that industry comes around to something that is like shared between platforms yep. in some way. Um, but nonetheless, I, you know, I think when that happens, it'll be an exciting innovation that a lot of people will want to participate in.
0: Well, um, Mark Cuban, um, Snoop Dogg, and Ashton Kutcher um, have announced this thing called NFTs, the pitch. And it's basically... <laughs> In simplest terms, folks, it is Shark Tank for NFTs, non-fungible tokens. And they want people to come to them. They have either negotiated or put up a million on their own, I'm not sure which, um, as a a payout for people that come to them with um, NFTs for a show. I mean, they want to do this as a streamed show. And certainly Ashton and uh, Cuban, know a lot about that because they've made big investments in that space. Snoop has had some of the largest YouTube views for his uh, cooking with Martha Stewart. (laughs) So who knows? This could be something that uh, this show, I mean, I I must admit, I am interested. I'd have to watch it. Um, But I think there are other angles that are more interesting that will, will come out about NFTs and that as an investable class, Galen.
1: Could they take the show itself and make an NFT of the recording of the show?
0: <laughs> sure.
1: See, well, John, it's been great talking yeah. with
0: you, Galen. I really appreciate your time, folks. Uh, we've been speaking with the director of data and indexes at CoinDesk. That gentleman is uh, Galen Moore. You can follow him. You can click and follow Coindesk. Great information there. I appreciate your time today, Galen. Thank you so much.
1: John, pleasure's all mine. Uh, Real pleasure talking with you and thanks for having me on.
0: Thank you. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B L E A V on YouTube.